what would you do for $10,000? There was a radio station in Chicago who essentially posed that very question. In fact, they offered a contest. Whoever could come up with the most outlandish way of winning it would receive $10,000, the winner of which was a college sophomore at Indiana State University who said that he would receive the money for eating an 11-foot fir fir birch wood tree. He ate a tree, 11-foot tree. He started at the top. He ate the leaves, the branches, the bark, and the roots. In fact, he made quite a spectacle of it because he ate it wearing a tuxedo. He had a candlelit table. He had fine china. Took him 18 hours over a span of three days. But sure enough, with, I guess, enough French dressing, he put down his tree salad and he ate the entire thing. What's funny is that afterwards, one of the local newspapers interviewed him and said, how do you feel having won $10,000? And he said, for some reason, my stomach really hurts. (laughs) Can't imagine why. It's a good thing he has $10,000. He'll use that in medical bills after eating a tree. One thing that tends to circulate often in our minds is the subject of money, the focus of wealth in our money, especially nowadays. With the rising prices of gas and food and housing, it's just it's common and natural for us to be thinking about the things that we own. And so with that, with that fresh on our minds, we need to look to the Word of God today. It'd be helpful for us to look to the Word of God to find some wisdom and guidance as to how to use our wealth. The Bible has a lot to say about money. Somewhere of upwards of 2,000 verses in the Bible talk about either money or material goods. Found in most of the Proverbs are statements associated with money or with giving. Found in the heart of the story of Ecclesiastes is the man who pursued money. Of Jesus' somewhat 38 or so parables, 16 of them deal with money or material goods. Money is all throughout the Scripture. In fact, you would be hard-pressed to find a subject more biblical than that of money. And yet, we don't often talk about it. And I think more often than not, we'd prefer not to talk about money and for us to talk about our wealth and how to use our wealth. But if our times tell us anything, if our modern times tell us anything, if our current status in our culture tells us anything, it's that we need some wisdom. We need some wisdom and guidance, some perfect wisdom and guidance as to how to use our goods in a way that would glorify God. So let's just take a peek. There's a lot we could see here, but let's lift up the rug just for a minute and see how we're doing as a society. The average credit card debt today is $5,221 is the average credit card debt. Over 62% of graduates in the class of 2019 had student loans averaging $28,000, nearly $29,000. 60% of U.S. adults say the pandemic has been highly disruptive to their finances One in six households reported to having more savings now than prior to the pandemic. Maybe let me say that again. Only one in six households reported to having more savings now than prior to the pandemic. Nearly one in five Americans didn't save any money in 2021. In fact, one statistic said that a quarter of Americans have no emergency fund at all. They are simply living paycheck to paycheck. 70% of Americans have less than $1,000 in savings account, and in one poll, 45% had $0 in their savings account. And then, of course, this is what caught the eye. The number one thing respondents said when they needed to save, uh, that they needed to save more money was a higher salary. 38% said having a bigger paycheck would help save more. 18% said lowering debt would make it easier to set aside cash. Can you hear the theme? If I had more money coming in, then I would have more money in the bank. 
rather than maybe cutting down and limiting, limiting what it is that I spend. And this, this is just a peak. You spend some time Googling, you spend some time researching, and you just sort of see where, where the American standard is today about how you see money, pursue money, use your money, and you just get a glimpse that we're just, as a society, we're just not doing very well. We're not being wise and prudent with the things, with the blessings that God has given to us. And it's not that we just need to be wise stewards. That's a part of it. But found at the heart of, of a lot of our central issues is mishandling money or finances. And so marriage strain, physical stress, and heart stress, distracted churches, distracted people, find its root back in the midst of not handling or rightly handling what God has given to us. Let's just be clear today, the American standard is not the standard for the people of God. We're looking today to 1 Timothy chapter 6 at some wise words that Paul gave through, through and to the young man Timothy about wealth. I want us to look at four words that can help us and bless us along the way of using our wealth in a way that would honor God. Here's our section. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in certain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold of e on eternal life. What do we see? What are some wisdom we find from God about how to use and handle our wealth in a way that would honor him? I think one of the first words we need to put on the board is the word control, because Paul says here that we need to not trust in uncertain riches. Good things can become bad things when we give them an unhealthy attention in our lives, the wrong place of priority in our lives. We might say it this way, when they take the place of God in our lives. Money's not a bad thing. With money, we provide for ourselves, we provide for our families, we're able to, in this context, share for those who are in need, and yet, though money can be a good servant, money is a miserable savior. You look at a passage like Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28, when it says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. You trust in it and you're going to fall. Or Proverbs 23 and verse 4 when it says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. Have you found that yet? Oh, the promises, the promises of wealth are a lot like a mirage in the desert. There it is and it seems great. It promises you the moon, but as soon as you have it and you grab it, it's gone. Because how many of us have stayed up late at night and we just kind of ran around this thought? If I only had that money, has, that first blank has changed for me along the way. When I had Benjamin, if I only had a couple million and then Emma came along, if I had a couple billion, <laughs> then I would be, I would feel, you've been there before? And just listen to the lies of money. Because sometimes it sounds like this, if I had more money, then I would feel more happy. I'd be happier. I'd be more at ease. And yet, it's Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10, which says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Because as soon as you have it, whatever that first blank is, whenever you've arrived at it, you realize it's not enough to keep you lastingly satisfied. 
We might think, though, instead of Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, if I only had enough money, I would feel more important. I'd feel valuable. I'd feel successful. People would notice me, praise me, and honor me for the things that I have done. And yet, Proverbs 22, verse 2 says, The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. Which is a way of saying that whether if you have a lot or none, it doesn't diminish the fact that you are made in the image of God, and therein is your value, and therein is your worth. We might say, well, if, if I had enough money, if I had more money, I'd feel safe. I would feel secure. My future would be secure. My, my children's future would be secure. But again, it's just a dream in our mind. A rich man's wealth in a strong city, the proverb says, is like a high wall in his imagination. It's all pretend because the moment you think you have it, it drops. You have a year like 2022 and the stock market tanks and your housing market rises and you find out that what you, what you had leaned on and relied on is nothing but, but a false god and an empty hope. You know, Jesus warned us about this. When, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talked about two masters and serving two different gods, he talked about it in the lens of money when he says that no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. When money becomes our God in our life, it becomes the central focus of our life. Getting more, protecting our assets, doing whatever it is to rise and accumulate enough to feel worthwhile, to feel safe. But I want you to notice in our context in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, here on the screen he says you will either love the one or hate the other. Look at 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith, and pierce themselves with many griefs. Do you notice the difference? When Jehovah God is our God, and we focus on Him and spend time with Him, we are always better. He makes us, creates us into something we couldn't imagine in ourselves. More holy, more righteous, more patient, more loving. But when money is our God, when that is our central love in life, do you get the picture in verse 10? It creates monsters out of us. That we use people in order to gain things that were selfish, that were greedy, that we never truly find satisfaction. It destroys us from the inside out. Money cannot save us, good brethren. You cannot buy your way into heaven, but certainly you can spend away your life and lose what matters the most. Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And forfeits his soul, or what will a man give in return for his soul? In fact, in your Bibles, go with me to Luke chapter 12. It's not going to be on the screen. Let's get in our Bibles and let's go to Luke 12. I want you to read a story with me. Jesus told in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 16, Jesus says, It says, He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Do you know what the point of the parable is? 
The issue in this story is not the fact that he built bigger barns, because all of us have done that, at least at some point. If you've been married for any length of time, you have built some bigger barns because the car you drive now is not the first car that you drove when you first were married. The place you are living now is probably not that small, small square foot apartment you lived in when you first were married. The money you have in the bank now is not the same amount as you had when you first were out started. We build bigger barns. That's not the problem in the story is the building of bigger barns. Verse 15 gives us the lead in to this parable. He says to them in verse 15, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Now look at that again and listen. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? It's a wonderful reminder for us today. You are more than what you own, and you are worth more than what you own. So whether you have a lot right now or you don't have anything, it doesn't change the fact that you were made in the image of God. And then but two hours from now, we're going to eat and to drink the reminder for us that we are worth something to God that money itself cannot buy. Peter would say in 1 Peter 1 verse 18, more precious than silver or gold for us, your 401ks or the greatest job you can achieve is the blood of Jesus that was given for you and for I. You're worth more than that to God. Don't forget it. It's hard for us today. We confuse self-worth and net worth all the time. The end of the parable gives us a so what. He says in verse 21, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Oh, he was wealthy. He was wealthy in his farms and his lands, but he was bankrupt spiritually. How easy it is to be so focused on here and now on life under the sun that we give no thought, no consideration, no time for God. I love Daniel's Daniel's illustration two Fridays ago of bubbles and chasing bubbles. And as soon as you grab the bubble, it's gone. That big glorious bubble he talked about the last two seconds, 0.2 seconds. And here Jesus is saying, you can spend a lifetime focusing on things that won't make a difference in eternity. Rich in the world, poor towards God. The warning number one from 1 Timothy chapter 6 is be in control. Own your things. Don't let your things own you. Trust in the Lord. Don't trust in your riches. And we need to be reminded. reminded. My strength does not depend on myself and my assets. My strength comes from the Lord who gives me all that I have. Now, second thing from this statement would be from this section is the word safe. Important thing for us to remember regarding our wealth. And our money is saving. Because there's a statement right in the heart of this section here when he says, able or ready to give. Ready implies this idea of preparation. It implies an ability that I am able in this moment to give or to share or to bless because I've done the work ahead of time. I've stored up my goods. And when a need arises, I am able to do something about it to meet the need. I'm able to do what Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 10, that when those opportunities come, I'm able to do good. Because the problem is sometimes we want to do good and we want to help people and we want to share and be generous. The desire is there, the willingness is there, but the ability is not. We just can't do anything about it. It could be because of life circumstances, the storms of life, the hardships of life. But for some, it could be because we did not make wise financial decisions. We were not wise with our choices. 
There's wisdom to setting things aside, the storing and saving small amounts along life's way. You look at Proverbs 21, verse 20, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it all. The NIV says that he swallows it whole. And that's the idea. Am I setting anything aside so that I can be ready in the moment. That's the Joseph principle. I'm setting things aside in good years because there's also going to be some bad years I need to be ready for. And so because they set aside Egypt's good during the good years, when the famine came, they were ready. Same thing happened to the prodigal son. He had a lot of money, but instead of setting it aside, thinking, you know, one day I might need some money, something bad might happen, he went through it all, spent it all in parties, and when the famine came, when the famine came he was unprepared. Joseph and the prodigal son remind us, brethren, famines come, and you and I face famines. It could be the loss of a job. It could be a sickness in the family or sickness in our own life. It could be an economy that challenges what it is that we have. Wisdom says, set things aside when things are good. Save along the way, not only for you to provide for yourself and for your families, but to be able to be a blessing to those who may need it in the moment. And that's hard to do. It's hard to do. It's hard to think ahead beyond the moment of today, saying, I might need this. This may be good to have in place, to be able, to be in a place to serve and to bless and to care when the moment arises. So some things that might help us along the way. What can help us to save is, is to guard against greed. The Proverbs would say in Proverbs 14, verse 10, a tranquil heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. I like the man who said, I just cannot save. I cannot get out of debt so long as my neighbor keeps on buying things that I can't afford. You've been there? Keeping up with the Joneses can be really hard. That's hard. Facebook makes it a lot worse. Look at the vacations people go on, the things that they own, the things that they buy, the cars that they drive. We said it before, brethren, the more focused we are on other people and not on ourselves and our walk with God, we're going to find ourselves sucked in the vacuum of a life we can't live, we can't keep up with. Live your life. Live your life. Bless your family. Follow your path. And don't be so consumed with trying to keep up with your neighbors. Build a realistic, a realistic budget. Proverbs 27, verse 23 and 24, Know well the conditions of your flocks and pay attention to your herds, for riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. One of the ways we can save is by keeping an inventory, taking stock, having an understanding of what it is I have coming in and what it is I have going out. Here in the terms of shepherding. How many sheep do you have and, and how are your sheep doing? Sheep was the same as wealth at that time. How are you doing financially? Do you know how much is coming in each month? Do you know how much is going out? Take some time, write down on the books, get some help to organize and build a realistic understanding of what it is you have. Pay your debts. Proverbs 22 and verse 7 says, The rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. So I'm saying that's saying that borrowing or debts are bad. We, we all need debts. Whether buying a house or buying a car or buying, buying bigger things, we, we accrue debts along the way to make it from here to home. But the problem is when we stack debt upon debt upon debt and don't do anything to pay it back, the proverb is right. You become a slave, unable to have any sense of freedom, flexibility, the strength and ability to be able to help and serve along the way. Pay your debts back. If you have a debt, whether a credit card debt or a car debt or a house debt, you have an agreement, a promise between someone and you and someone else, and you need to be a person of integrity who pays back what you promise to borrow. And so pay it back. Small increments, 
Maybe it takes a credit card, cutting it in half today with the scissors, but whatever it takes, pay your debts and get in control as to what's going out of your flow. And then live on less than you make. Proverbs 13, verse 7 says, There's one who pretends to be rich but has nothing. Another pretends to be poor but has great wealth. Do you know anyone that way? Do you know anyone who boasts and it makes it seem like they have a lot of money and then you realize they're absolutely broke? Like everything they spent was on that car because when you see everything else in their life and how much debt they have, it was all just a facade and image. But have you ever met someone and maybe the clothes they wore or the car they drove or their house they were in would give you no impression as to how much money they really had? Secret millionaires. My grandfather had the same stove from 1960 till when he died two years ago. One of those with, you remember the dials on top of it, which told you how long it was cooking for? It wasn't a digital. It was a dial that went around. That's how old that stove was. His house had not changed since 1960. He wasn't a millionaire, but he had more than enough money to be able to change it all. Does that mean you live miserly or miserably? No. It just means that you learn to live within your means. Far too many of us buy things we can't afford because we want to keep up with everyone else, with the flow of, of the society around us. But what if maybe instead we learn to live under our means, to desire less, to be drawn to less, to be satisfied with what we have instead of always wanting more? We'd be able to be a people who could set things aside and be in a place to help and a place to give when the time and the opportunity arose. Our next statement is a statement share because the very next statement after ready to give means willing to share. It's one thing to have the ability. I have the money. I have the goods. And so I'm in a place where I could share. I could help. But it's another thing to have the desire, to have the heart. And that's what willing implies, that not only do I have the ability, I also have the desire. I have the heart that says I want to do so. John paints a picture of, of one who has what one needs and yet doesn't give it. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet look at that, look at the image, closes his heart. He closes his heart against him. How does the God's love abide in him? You ever see someone like that? I know what you need. I know you're hurting. I know times are tough. Isn't it amazing how a closed heart often finds its application in a closed wallet. But maybe the opposite picture, like in Deuteronomy chapter 15, I love the imagery here, that there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall, look, open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor in your land. I love that. Do I want to walk through life with clenched fists, clinging desperately to the things that are mine, are mine? Or do I want to be one who just simply opens wide? Says, I may not have much, but if I can help, if I can bless, if I can encourage, if I can share, and it's going to help you along the way, it's, it's yours. And what a difference, because I know so many of you, as, as I have myself, been the recipient of those. A blessing someone along the way, a kind gift, giving something to a college student, because five bucks or a gas car to a college student is gold to them. A free meal means so much. Helping a young family with a young baby, giving them things, diapers, formula, food, whatever it is, goes such a long way. Blessing our older members, taking them out or providing them goods or gifts goes such a long way. 
The proverb says it best when he says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, not just grandchildren. And the question is, you and I know we're not taking it with us. It all goes back in the box once we go on to heaven, once we go on to eternity. And so what am I leaving for those behind? What am I leaving for my family? What am I leaving for my family's family? But what am I leaving for my family in Christ? Am I so tightly clenched to the things that I have that I'm unwilling to give what it is that I have been given from the Lord? And our last point is simply this, and that is enjoy. I don't think we talk about this one as much with our, our subject on money. We talk about giving and how important giving is. And we talk about making sure we're good stewards of money. But right in the first part of this section, Paul says that God gives us all things to enjoy. One part of this is realizing God gives us our gifts and what he wants from us, encourages us, is to enjoy the goods that we have, to enjoy our blessings, to enjoy our material goods without any guilt without any shame. There's two parts to that found right in this chapter, right in this section, how you and I can enjoy our blessings, enjoy our wealth, enjoy our goods in a way that doesn't bring guilt or shame or that awkwardness in our heart. One is that word, I'm going to come to that passage here in a moment. One is that word haughty. Some versions will say arrogant. Arrogance is, is one of the killers of joy when it comes to material goods because what arrogance says is it's mine and I earned it and it belongs to me. I put in the work, I put in the toil, and so it's all mine. Look what I have built. Look what I have bought. Look what I have accrued. It's all about me. And the passage says you're not to be haughty or to trust in your riches because you're supposed to understand something. You're supposed to be reminded of something as a child of God, and that is everything that you have and everything that you own came first from the one who gave it, came from God. We will never enjoy our goods if we fail to remember where they came from. So don't be hiding. But the other way of enjoying these is the rest of this section. If we live in balance of verses 18 and 19 and do these to the best of our ability, that we give generously, that we work earnestly, that we save carefully, then we will be a people who, when the opportunity comes, can use our blessings with joy. Which means we can buy things not only that we need, but we can buy things that we want. That we can go on vacation wherever it is that we have spent or saved or set aside and go on that vacation without any guilt. Because isn't that what God wants? He has given us all things to sit miserably about. And if you spend one cent on your stuff, you're supposed to feel terrible. That's not what it says. Why did God give us this wealth? Why did he give us these blessings? Why did he give us these things if they were not to enjoy Yes, when met with the balance of everything else, Paul says here in this context. Brethren, if we're generous, if we're good stewards, if we're mindful and careful with what God has given us, can't we enjoy the goods that he has given to us, giving thanks to the one who gave them all to us? Do you see from our passage on the board what happens First Timothy 6 and 17 to 19, what, what happens when you take God out of the equation and you just look at money, money without God? Life becomes miserable. And your relationship with, with wealth becomes miserable. Take God out of the equation. You're not giving, you're hoarding. 
Not only are you not willing, you're not only able because you have no control over what you're spending because you're spending all the time. There's no verse 19. You're giving no thought or consideration to what is yet to come. You're not able to enjoy what it is that you have because you are so prideful, so caught up on what it is that we have, that we have earned, that we have deserved, that we have bought, that God is not in the consideration. And those who are wealthy without God are some of the most miserable people in the world. And yet when you bring God into the equation and you look at what it is we have through the lens of Jesus, everything changes. In fact, that's where I want to end today. I want you to go in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 19. And I want you to see how that's shown here. When we bring God into the equation and God is our center focus relating to all things that we have, especially with our wealth, everything changes. Because in Luke 19, Jesus comes across a, young, a, a small man. He's not young, a small man, a, a tax collector. Zacchaeus was very successful at what he did. He was very good about getting money from people, demanding more than what was owed and exacting the difference. But then Jesus comes to town and everything changes. It says in, in Luke 19 and verse 3, Zacchaeus was trying to see Jesus, who Jesus was, and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried, and he came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now stop for a minute. Stop. Catch the story, and maybe let's catch where we are, not just you and I in life. Let's catch where we are this moment on a Sunday, on this day. Because here's a guy who really struggled with his money. In fact, it became his life. He was abusing people. He was so focused on his wealth and on his goods, he didn't care what he did to anyone else to get it. And everyone knew it because no one could stand him. And in fact, when it seemed like he was the favor of Jesus who came into town, they all couldn't stand it either. How dare Jesus give him attention? Do you know what he has done to us? And so here's a man who has let wealth be his God and ruin his life. And I don't know where we are today. But maybe in anything that we've talked about and anything that, that we have seen through 1 Timothy chapter 6, maybe we are at a place today where we need some realignment. Realignment of our view, of our perspective, of our focus, of how we see our wealth. Because you notice what happens? Here's Zacchaeus whose life is completely consumed by what it is that he owes. He has no control over himself and his money. But in verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. Here's why we're here, brethren. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Can you see it? A life unaligned. A life unfocused, a life corrupted by goods and material deeds. And yet when Jesus enters the picture, everything comes back aligned. The greedy becomes generous, the selfish becomes selfless. And this careless tax collector becomes a caring and compassionate servant of God. 
Maybe what we need to realign our focus today is simply that, to spend some time in these next few hours closer to the cross, to let that death, burial, and resurrection, which we're going to remember here in a moment, to realign our perspectives, to refocus our directions, to help us, as Jesus said, to unbind the shackles that so easily bind us in life. And to save a people who seem so drifting towards the things that don't matter the most. Let's let Jesus realign us today. Whether it's wealth or worldly things, maybe just apathy that's crept into our hearts. Maybe I'm just not at the place I need to be today. Today's a great day to come to Jesus. To focus on Jesus. To leave here closer with Jesus. And may the Lord bless us to do so this day. Thank you for listening so well this morning. We're going to have a word of prayer and a verse of a song and be dismissed to our classes. Let's be standing and have that prayer, please. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.